lot of scientists are, so many are interested in these topics. I mean, if you're human, you're, you've, you're interested in these topics or you've had experience with them. And it's really only our Western culture and scientific materialism of the last couple hundred years that has disconnected us from that aspect of our humanity and kind of made it shameful in a lot of ways. I think the evidence for psychic phenomena is like, personally, I don't think it's questionable. Like I think there's so much evidence that to deny it, you're, you're really, you're doing confirmation bias, right? You're, you're just (laughs) supporting your belief in the world because the evidence is stronger than a lot of things we have evidence for in neuroscience or psychology. Hello, and welcome to the Word for Woman podcast. I'm Christina, your host, and my guests are people who operate at the intersection of science and spirituality. It is my great pleasure today to speak with Dr. Mona Sobani. Welcome to the show, Mona. Thank you so much for having me. It's brilliant to have you on. Thank you so much for being here. Dear listeners, Dr. Mona Sobani is a cognitive neuroscientist, researcher, and author with over 15 years of experience and a passion for exploring how science and technology intersect with society and affect human health and well-being. For a long time, spirituality was not part of Mona's interests. In fact, she used to be vehemently opposed to it because it didn't seem to make any scientific sense. In her own words, I didn't understand the concept of the soul because I couldn't imagine what it was made of. Carbon, hydrogen, oxygen. Where did it sit in the body? When did it emerge during development of the fetus? It just made no sense to me. I didn't even understand what the word spiritual meant. Mona's stance on spirituality radically changed when a series of life-altering events and inexplicable experiences launched her into a two-year investigation of phenomena such as past lives, intuitive knowing, karma, and the complex interactions of mind and matter. In this process, and to her astonishment, Dr. Sobani came across extensive scientific evidence for spiritual phenomena, which started to profoundly affect her worldview. She documented this journey in her first book on the intersection of science and spirituality, Proof of Spiritual Phenomena, A Neuroscientist Discovery of the Ineffable Mysteries of the Universe, launched in 2022, which just won an AMI Award for Best Spiritual Book. Huge congratulations, Mona. What an amazing achievement that is. Thank you so much. It's very exciting. I really want to kick this off with... The way that you chose to preface your book, for our listeners, the quote I provided in the introduction was from Mona's book as well. I had forgotten to mention that. So this is how you kick off your book. Welcome to the public funeral for old me. I really don't want to be writing this book. Sometimes I find myself imagining how my life would have been had I gone on the way I was before. Sometimes I wish none of this had happened to me and I had stayed on my original path. Nevertheless, like many other things in life, it was unstoppable, it happened, and now I'm here, writing this book I don't want to be writing. Mona, I have to say I'm getting goosebumps while reading this, because (laughs) the moment I opened your book, I was like, whoa, this hits hard. I'm getting emotional listening to it again. (laughs) Oh my god, like, it was, you know, I think it struck such a beautiful balance between profound, first of all. Uh, because for me, it really I could really relate to, you know, what am I doing? Like, why am I even in this world? You know, that feeling. And also you made it so funny and human and, you know, just 
<laughs> just how we are, right? Like, tell me a bit about that. Tell me a bit about why you chose to open the book this way. Yeah, why did I? Well, um, um, the the way I write is, um, so I don't work well sitting, you know, in front of the computer and thinking, okay, I have to write something. Like if I get up and walk around or if I'm like daydreaming, like things just flow. And one day I was still working my old job and I think I was just um, thinking about the journey I'd been on and those words started just coming. Like it just started forming in my head and I got really excited or like um, energized around it and thinking like, you know, this, and I was thinking about the dichotomy of how much happier like I was because of the journey like my soul or whatever you want to call it, my spirit, my, I don't know what was happy or, but my ego was struggling. And so there was this constant dichotomy of that. And, um, it was that insight of like, I have to somehow, uh, honor this, you know, honor the ego or honor the old me or reconcile this friction. Um, and it was in thinking about that, that it just started the, those words and ideas started to flow. And I, I remember thinking like, I don't, yeah, like I wish I had not, sometimes I'm like, I, my ego wishes that I had not gone through this, that I, that I didn't even have this friction that I could live my old life. But then if I was being honest, like I wasn't happy and I was so less fulfilled in the previous life or in, in that old personality and so it was just very uncomfortable situation of like 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 they when they talk about transformation and death and rebirth that that moment between the two is really hard you know like you're not comfortable with the new person emerging and but you know um, because you've seen a new way of being that the old person is not for you anymore but it's what you know and it's comfortable and so it's hard to let go of and so um, it was that whole kind of, like I said, friction and tension between those two, um, where this started emerging, like the book started coming through. I really love that the book came from this in-between space. I think that really struck me while uh, reading the book, and that sat with me for a long time afterward, was that you, it's, it's not always, the ego is not always obvious. I think in these types of books. And for you, it seemed like you were looking straight at it at the same time as presenting evidence. And you were saying, hey, hold on a second. How do you feel about this? And it was just kind of like kicking and screaming. And you were just so honest and transparent. And you were expressing it in such a relatable way and such a reassuring way um, as well for your readers. Um, I'm glad it came across that it, way. It definitely, oh my God. Like, as I was saying, like I, I was I was getting like the goosebumps I was getting earlier, I was getting throughout the book because I think many times we when we go on the spot of, oh, is there something to spirituality? You know, it kind of feels weird, like maybe I can get something to back it up. And you know, in your case it started with scientific evidence. I think we we don't often see this hidden side of the experience. Uh -huh. We see the evidence, we see mm -hmm. the oh, this is why this is reasonable to believe. 
Right. We see everything that hides behind this wall of reasonableness and rational. And, you know, I'm still the same old me, rational, like reassurance type of thing. But we never, I have personally never quite seen the ego put in the spotlight quite <laughs> like that. Was this a conscious decision on your end? Did it just kind of happen that way when writing the book? Um, no, it, it wasn't co conscious in that. Um, I mean, I, I didn't think of it in the way you're talking about it of like, oh, I should do this. Um, it, it just was the way I was writing it. I think it's, it's just kind of the way it, it happened. I mean, I do think the first version of the book, um, you know, it was, it was a little more evidence, like it was a little more like um, the facts, even though I had the story, my story in there, but like halfway through the book in the original version, I started just presenting the evidence and like uh, only that. And then when I gave it to friends to read, um, you know, some of their feedback was like, oh, I really liked the beginning when it was super personal. And um, why don't you add more personal stories into it and, and, and talk about how, as you read this, these findings, or you, you know, came to understand the science, then how did that affect you and your life? And so it was that, like, I had started doing that in the beginning of the book. And then I guess I, I don't know, I went into like scientific writing mode. Um, and then so it was people's feedback who was like, no, go back, you know, like, go back to what you were doing in the beginning and pull some of that through as a thread um, to the end of the book, because it'll, you know, like tie it together and it breaks up the science. And they're like, also, I mean, they just told me, they're like, we're curious, like, as you're reading these, um, you know, findings, like, what is your thought process? And how is it sitting with you? Like, did you just accept it? And suddenly everything changed for you easily overnight. And so when I in conversation with my friends, reading it, I realized, oh, not at all. Oh, my goodness. No, <laughs> like reading it was not easy. And they were right. I realized it seemed, you know, in the first draft, like, Maybe I just accepted it and suddenly um, like flipped and was like, oh, okay, there's a paper that proves this. And now I've accepted it and flipped my worldview. But the truth is that's not what happened. <laughs> you know, I went back and forth a million times. I didn't believe it. I believed it. I didn't believe it. Like, and then I had all the, the and then that's what forced me to face the, um, you know, when I had to do the exercise of let me write down what it was like for me, then that's mm -hmm. where that emerged. Um, and I could see more clearly, oh, wow. Yeah. It was like a, a really big battle and a lot of friction and tension and being uncomfortable, um, for a very long time. So, yeah. And I was like, yeah, and I don't want to portray it. Like, like I just read the evidence and accepted it and it was easy because it wasn't. And I think that, I think that a lot of, that's partly why I wrote the book. Cause a lot of, I read a lot of books with just science a lot of evidence, right? There's a lot of um, scientists that write about science and spirituality, but what I didn't find was a lot of personal stories and especially the, I mean, personal stories, yes, but not like the details of, um, of it flipped. And I found myself, you know, in the book, I talk about, I interview a bunch of scientists. It, it continues after the book too, like just for my own personal journey. And in those interviews, I found myself asking them, a lot of them, the ones that had really flipped, like, um, you know, how easy was this for you or how hard was it? And so I just brought that back into the book when I went to edit it and, 
and, and thought, yeah, we I should include that because there's not a lot of that. There's not a lot of um, admitting how difficult it is to flip a worldview. It's not trivial by any means. Totally. And when you talk about this journey that you've undertaken, um, uh, in addition to the backs and forwards and changing your mind and changing your mind again, you use this framework of there used to be old Mona and now there's the new Mona. Well, the old Mona is still here, but I'll let you talk more about that. Can, can you give us the key moments that led old Mona to transform into new Mona? Okay, to be honest, they're probably still struggling between each other. <laughs> it's an ongoing thing. But, um, and, I, and I think that that's, I, I don't know, like, I think in the beginning, probably when I wrote the book, I thought that, right? I was like, oh, I'm going to write this. It's going to be my closure. But it wasn't. <laughs> it never is, right? It's like a continual process that never ends because, and in some ways, you don't want to lose your old self because it's part of who you are. So, um, and I think in particular for something like this, it's, it's helpful. Otherwise, and this is going to be, <laughs> this is like, when I started this journey and I would listen to scientists who were into science and spirituality on podcasts, sometimes they were so spiritual that, you know, and I wasn't there. So I would not even understand what they were talking about. Um, most of the time, because it's like, I was, you know, I'm like a preschooler <laughs> spirituality. And they were, again, they don't, they didn't talk about the the struggle and some of them did, but I'm saying like, I didn't find a lot of that. Um, and so it was hard to relate to. And so I thought, um, you know, I wanted to, yes, there's this old me, but she's in, when I wrote the book, it, it wasn't, it was just cause she's like right there. Anyway, anytime I found myself writing something, spiritual or leaning or what or like the skepticism always there and was like what would what do I what would I have needed to hear um what's this perspective that would have convinced me and so I tried to uh, incorporate that because it was really important and it is what happened naturally uh, on the journey and it still happens so when I you know I think that old needs gets more and more quiet but like I said I want to not lose her because it's valuable to have both perspectives. Like you don't want to, um, you don't want to lose that because that old me is a little more aligned with Western scientific society. And so, you don't like, I don't want to be in that situation where it's like when I was listening to those podcasts and I didn't understand what people were talking about. Like you want to keep that bridge between the two worlds. Otherwise you're just going to flip over into the other and, the people who need to hear you won't hear you because the people on the other side are fine. <laughs> They've already accepted their spirituality and they have no problems. So it's like the people in the middle, it, you know, I wrote the book for myself, like the book I wish I had that was like, Hey, this is going to be hard, but it's, you know, there's evidence for it. It's worth it. It's worthwhile. It'll be fine. That's awesome. Um, I love this message of, honoring and keeping old Mona, not seeking to distance yourself from her, because I also believe it's very important to adjust our communication to the language of each person. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's something you were recently touching in one of your Substack articles as well, that mm -hmm. we each have different entry points into this world and some concepts might mean nothing to us yes. and others might be like, oh yeah, but it actually refers to the same underlying thing. 
Yes. Yeah. I've noticed that a lot. I mean, I notice it all the time. It just continues uh, that people will come in and they, you know, they'll approach me because they got into this field through whatever it is for them. And it's always something different, like, you know, a personal experience or they read a book on past life regression like I did or whatever it is, but they're all different. And then I really came to understand that you can't expect people to come in and know everything and accept everything. And that, you know, it really is like I described in that post, I think of it as like a forest, people come in from different sides. So if someone comes in and is describing the Western front of the forest and you tell them the Eastern side and they're like, oh, I don't care about the Eastern side. You can't blame them. They haven't seen it. They don't understand it. Uh, They'll get there one day, but you just kind of have to, you know, meet them where they are. And yeah, there's all this different language, like people, um, I believe in karma or I believe in consciousness or I don't know what. I mean, I, I try to think beyond language now and think about just forms and concepts, but um, not everyone does that, but, and that's why language is important, right? It's important for us to think about how to talk about these things in a way, but it's like you, like you mentioned or pointed out, like there is an underlying thing and it's all the same. And, you know, it's, it's just trying to find a way to, to remind people of that. Like we're all kind of talking about the same thing, but we may be describing it differently. So if old Mona now were to ask, all right, new Mona. What is a soul? <laughs> Explain it to me in a way that I'll actually get on board with this. Oh, wow. That's a hard question. <laughs> um, what is a soul? <laughs> I mean, I think I think of it now. I think that there is an aspect of the universe that is either energy or information or something that we can't measure yet um, that flows through everything. So um, some sort of field or I don't know, whatever you want to call it. And I think that it's one, right? It's like one thing that runs through everything, but that it comes into or interacts with our biological bodies. um, And that I think is a soul. Uh, It's like, your spirit, your connection to everything else, uh, your true self. And I don't, I think, uh, I want to say, I feel like we'll be able to measure it in some way someday because I mean, I don't know. I guess that, I guess that the, um, jury is out on that, but yeah, well, that's what I would say. (laughs) I guess I'll stop. Thank you. I, I appreciate that's that's a tough question. And I think you're undertaking quite a tough mission to explain these concepts to the people in between who are like, yeah, I kind of want to hear a scientific thing to it. But at the same time, we might not, as you also make the argument, we might not be equipped at current time or maybe ever to approach some things from a scientific angle. And we just don't know. For sure. Yeah. Yes. And I think um, one thing I will say, sorry, and this is why I was kind of struggling with the question too. I was trying to, um, one thing is when I started the journey, I was a scientific materialist, right? I'm a traditionally trained scientist. So when I started the journey, that's what I was looking for. Like that quote you pulled, I want to know what is the soul made of? How do we measure it? I want to know 
um, how would it be possible for any of these things to happen? I want to know the mechanism, right? I want to have it reduced. Um, and then that was very important at the beginning of the journey because that's how I thought. And that was my, you know, box, like of my belief box or my perception box was like, I only accept scientific measurements as I define them or as our society defines them. But then once you get into the field and you start reading about philosophy and you realize that scientific materialism is just one possible philosophy of reality amongst many others, and just because we assume that it's true doesn't mean that it's true. Um, and you find that there's these other theories that you know say, yes, there is a physical component to the universe that we can measure and describe, but that there's another aspect to the universe um, like, you know, in philosophy of dual aspect monism or something, they're like, there's some other aspect to the universe that is the experience that we feel like subjective experience or the quality of something. And we know in science, it's hard to measure subjective experience. That's the hard problem of consciousness and neuroscience. We know that it's hard to capture the quality of something. And when you think about like normal research that we do, neuroscience and psychology, we take a human being, like think of the people that you know, when you think of a person and all their complexity, right? You don't think of all of the adjectives about them. You think about them as a whole and you have like it, the essence of them, right? Um <clears throat> But in science, we try to reduce them with these um, questionnaires and these surveys into these data points. And then, but, you know, if you step back truly as a scientist, you're like this anxiety score and this depression score and this big five personality, does it really capture the essence of this person? Of course it doesn't. So we, we aren't very good in science at capturing the quality of things and the phenomenal things and people's phenomenological experiences. We already can't capture that. And I think that our society or science endeavor just discards it. But I think through this like science and spirituality uh, and exploration of philosophy and whatnot, you start to realize maybe there is another, yeah, there is another, not maybe, there is another aspect. There's a quality to things that we can't measure or we don't know how yet. Um, and that that is just as important as the physical, because that's what really makes what animates life and humanity, right? Art, culture, those things you can't um, take a painting and reduce it down into data points and say, this is why this, you know, artistic piece evokes these feelings in people or, you know, has that quality. So I think that's one of the important things that comes out of exploring science and spirituality. It, it opens up the way that you think, especially for scientists. It, it breaks you out of that reducing, like, let me reduce everything into data points because that's not actually how the world is. Yeah, I, I love that you start from the very foundation of science as it's overwhelmingly conducted now, which is the philosophy of scientific materialism. Um, and as a refresher for our listeners, <laughs> um, though this was mentioned in other episodes as well, but if this is the first episode that you come across, um, actually, Mona, do you want to introduce scientific materialism to us really quickly? Yeah, sure. It's just the philosophy or belief that, um, that the reality is composed of physical matter and that that is what it only it is composed of and that's how we move forward with science assuming that everything that's physical that we can measure that's all there is to reality there's nothing else so we should be able with that model to describe everything that we observe in this reality but the problem is that we can't that there's a lot of classes of data that we cannot describe and explain 
with scientific materialism, so it falls short. So there's other philosophies like panpsychism, for example, that assumes that consciousness is fundamental, like is some sort of fundamental source in the universe and that it, it is actually what makes up reality and that everything is conscious. It's a, that's just another example. Yeah, I, I love that it scientific materialism starts to break down quite quickly once you start to think about human experiences such as love. Mm-hmm. How much do you love a sibling? <laughs> On a scale of zero yeah. to ten, you know, it's just that it's nonsensical. Um, and we see how it starts to break down. And that's something that I that intrigued me mm-hmm. um, throughout your book and in the title of your book, the fact that you use... Um, you talk about this idea of proof mm-hmm. and how you change your definition of proof from scientific evidence to mm-hmm. something more broad. Do you want to share a bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, like a scientific materialism in our uh, Western culture, you know, the idea of proof. Scientists never use the word proof because we can't really, it's hard to prove things definitively. But uh, it like I mentioned we believe that everything's physical and you should be able to measure it. And so in some ways it's like, if you can't measure it, you can't prove it. It's not real. And when I started the journey, I was like, that's what I was talking about. I needed um, proof of mechanism and I needed science papers and all of that. But then again, once you start getting into the philosophy of it, um, you kind of realize the absurdity of, especially in neuroscience um, and psychology of your perceptions can't be trusted, but then your perception is all there is. Like we don't actually know outside of our, we can't get behind consciousness or behind perception because um, we can't, that's just the way it is. And so we don't actually know what reality is. And so it's like, you realize this absurd (laughs) conundrum that we're in um, that you can't trust, uh, your perceptions. And so I think on the spiritual journey, a lot of it is that though it's personal. Um, you know, like you'll have some personal experience that is so overwhelming and so emotional and so out of this world. And, um, and that's what, what, what was coming into focus for me as I was going on this journey was I had these personal experiences, but then I went to the science to find evidence Um, But even, and that's what was confusing is even when I found science, even when I found evidence and I found proposed mechanisms, I found that that wasn't enough um, to flip my worldview. And so then I started realizing, I was like, it's both. Like you have to have both. You have to have the experience to, like, again, if someone doesn't experience something, it's hard for them to believe it or understand it. It's just, that's how humans are. Um, and so you needed the personal experience and then it helps to have the science. So yeah, I ended up redefining and being like, this is like, I mean, you really start to look at scientific evidence and like, I just talked about, you're like, wow, like we really can't measure a lot of stuff. And we really assume that we know everything. (laughs) I like what we're really missing so much data and our models are never very good. And yet we insist that this is the best way forward. And so, yeah, at some point you're just like, Oh, this is stupid. And you just throw it away and you're like, okay, I mean, it's important, but you know, to say that it's everything is absurd. As you talk, I, I envision this journey. The start point is some sort of false certainty. Like, of course we know everything. Of course we have the tools to know everything we don't know, you know, and 
as you move through it, like starting to question the very foundations onto which we build knowledge and how we think about knowledge, it just becomes more and more uncertain. Mm -hmm. um, and I, for myself, I have sense that can be a little bit destabilizing. And I'm imagining that was the case for yourself and many people listening as well. Um, oh, yeah. How did you navigate this sense of not being grounded? Yeah, that's... Uh... That's a huge part of it. Oh my goodness. I mean, part of the friction, I was talking about the friction and the tension between old me and new me. And then on top of that, at the same time, you have what you're talking about is this destabilization of, because it's a ontological shock, right? The way that you make sense of the world and reality. So the way you interact with the world and then the way you, in your mind, understand it, you know, and have this relationship with it suddenly change is changing. And again, sort of maybe before you form your new ontology, you're between ontologies. And I don't know if there's anything more destabilizing than that. <laughs> so, it, and it is, it's really difficult. And I don't, you know, that's, I think what some of the spiritual practices help with, you know, um, and what happens is you get, because we're such rational thinkers, we're such overthinkers and we're trained to be rational. So you get in these thought loops and this constant mind chatter. And that's actually what drives you crazy is the, um, no, but this is how, how I used to understand the world. Oh no, but what if this is true? Then how do I reconcile the two? How do I know what's real and what's not? And um, each person has to decide that for themselves. Um, it's gonna be unique to everyone, but that discomfort also brings into sharp focus how much your mind talks. <laughs> like that's something I noticed. At some point I was just like, wow, just shut up. Like <laughs> all of this thinking about the, you know, the 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 twists and the turns and the rationality and the frustrations and the I need an answer, but I can't find one. And it was like, and like I said, if you go into a spiritual practice like meditation to quiet your mind, suddenly none of that matters. And you're just like, okay, oh my God, can I have a moment of bliss and peace? This is nice. Wow. Maybe I don't have to figure out the ontology, you know, in a day. And that's what happens though, is that you, your, you know, your ego and your mind are like, oh, we need to figure it out now. Um, but you can't, <laughs> you just can't um, because it's going to change and it's going to evolve and you're, you know, but so the, the best thing I learned was to just when possible, which it's very hard to do when you're in the middle of it, though, is to at least take breaks and let go and um, find moments of peace and quiet. Um, and actually in those moments, of course, of peace and quiet, then you have insights <laughs> that clarify things for you. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's more, it, it's sort of like creativity, like think really hard on a problem and then let it go. And then that's when you have a breakthrough. So uh, yeah, it is, it is difficult it's one of the most difficult things, um, but there's there's practices that can help you through it. I think this sense of I have to figure it out now might possibly be even worse for people whose job is to create knowledge, such as yourself. Mm -hmm. um, and this idea of identity, you know, is something that keeps showing up um, mm. in how you talk about your experience uh, throughout the book and through your transition. When you make the argument that when you think about it, you know, the reason this is so destabilizing is because 
you're changing identities. You're not just changing beliefs. You're literally changing who you are or who you think yourself to be. And I think in addition to meditation as a practice um, and just separating yourself from it in that sense, I also liked something that I don't remember if you mentioned it in uh, when when we privately spoke or if it was in your book or in one of your articles, but it was something about grounding your identity in being curious rather than any one belief at any one point in time. And I, I know that's also part of your personal model. So mm -hmm. you'd like to share yeah. that. Yeah. So yeah, I realized a lot of the suffering and frustration and you know, just difficulties that I was coming up against was that was trying to figure out the answer, like trying to understand reality to have a model that makes sense. And I think, um, and I guess, yeah, part of it is your identity of like, I have to, I'm smart, I should be able to figure this out. I'm a scientist, whatever. But then after a while, you, you know, you start, um, well, what happened was I started updating my model constantly um, because I kept learning more and more. And it's like you said, you start from certainty and then slowly that starts getting chipped away to the point where you're like, I don't know what I know. <laughs> and then suddenly you're like, all I know is I don't know anything because every day I, I learned about something new that throws the ontology that I decided was true into the trash and I have to update it again. And I think at some point, yeah, I became just tired of doing that. And I mean, not just tired, it was like frustrating and, and, uh, it wasn't working. Um, and you're right. And each time I had to update my identity too. And I mean, I didn't realize that is what was happening, but that was what was happening. And, um, and then eventually I thought at the end of it, like, you know what, I, it's not possible to have all of the knowledge in the universe uh, or even all of human knowledge. Well, first of all, human knowledge is not all the knowledge in the universe. Um, but even if you had all of human knowledge, it's it's not possible. So, um, so what can I ground myself in? Like you have to, I had to let go of that idea of well, I'm going to figure this out. Um, because too, as you start to go into the field, you realize, oh, people have been working on this for a really long time and they still don't have it figured out. Mm -hmm. Or you could have two people who've been working on this for each 50 years and they're Nobel laureates or whatever, and they have two different models. Mm -hmm. And you're like, oh my God, you know, I don't know. So at some point you're just like, you know what? Nobody knows. And, um, we're just going to have to stay like the truth is probably somewhere in between everything. Um, and I, I got tired of it and I just thought, you know what? I don't know. All I know is I don't know. <laughs> and I'm just going to stay like open and curious because that seemed to be working well. You know, like it's interesting to learn more and to add to the model and just keep updating as you go. Mm. Um, that's not a bad thing. And that just provided so much more freedom and less friction and just a lot more openness. And it was just suddenly like very light and free to, to do that. So I, I still, I try to do that still. Yeah, I'm curious, well, because the set of beliefs, let's say, that old Mona was holding and new Mona's holding and that is, is open to, let's say, because as we've established, they're, they're, they're never quite fixed. Um, how did your colleagues react to this? Because you're new Mona, but in the world of old Mona. So <laughs> what happened from that point? Yeah, I mean, luckily, a lot of it happened during co the COVID quarantine lockdown. <laughs> I mean, it started before COVID. Like, I had started reading 
I, I had heard that um, a podcast episode that got me, I had the personal experiences, I heard a podcast, I read a book. And so I had started kind of, um, basically my foundation had started to crack <laughs> and I started to become destabilized, but nothing, I hadn't dove in yet. Um, and I, I only really had time to dive in when the COVID lockdown happened because mm-hmm. suddenly I had all this time on my hands. So it was like, at, at that point, um, it is when I started, you know, reaching out to my scientist colleagues and talking to them and whatnot. And it was scary to do that, but I did it with friends, first of all. So, <laughs> um, but it was still scary because I didn't know what any of them believed. And I don't know. I mean, so I, I think it would have been very difficult to do if I had to I used to work at USC, University of Southern California. So if I had to go in every day, um, I think it would have been a lot harder to do that and to like stay in the academic environment, I think would be really difficult. So I was lucky that COVID happened and I got to be disconnected from that and be at home to work through all these ideas. Uh, and so, but my colleagues, I mean, through those interviews as I write in the book, like I, I realized that everyone has an experience everyone has had an experience, like, uh, whether it's personal or not, they, and they were all interested in these things and were ready to admit, you know, like we don't know everything and all kinds of weird things happen all the time in the universe that are, that we just ignore because we can't explain them. And so I just felt a lot of comfort in that. Like even just those conversations were comforting. I mean, the funny thing is, you know, now i have met so many scientists who openly talk about these things, study these things. There's groups I've joined. I mean, there's, you know, professional associations. I mean, I, but I didn't have any of that at the time. So even those simple conversations um, were comforting. Um, But yeah, sometimes I'm like, Oh, like in my head, I should do like a meditation to go back to myself at that time and be like, you don't even know you're about to find the like groups of people who, you know, are so open and who've had way weirder experiences than you've had. And they've, you know, reconciled it. So, uh, yeah, so that was just the beginning, but now I've found so many people that it's not even, um, now, now I think of it as the ones who, are, you know, living in denial or just don't want to talk about it in public. Um, they're the ones I'm targeting. (laughs) (laughs) I, a point that I really love that you made in the book is that often there's this public impression that, oh, scientists don't talk about these things because they're close-minded, but you know how that's actually a misconception and the reasons behind why spirituality or psi phenomena are not a bigger topic in scientific research are quite different. Um, Do you want to go a bit into them? Yeah, it's basically stigma. It's like human fear. Mm. (laughs) But um, yeah, a lot of scientists are, so many are interested in these topics. I mean, if you're human, you're, you're interested in these topics or you've had experience with them. And it's really only our Western culture and scientific materialism of the last couple hundred years that has disconnected us from that aspect of our humanity and kind of made it shameful in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, I think also, honestly, like I said, it's hard to measure this stuff. We don't know the best way to approach it because we don't understand it. Um, and so then you get evidence that's, um, although to be fair, I think the evidence for psychic phenomena is like, personally, I don't think 
it's questionable. Like I think there's so much evidence that to deny it, you're you're really you're doing confirmation bias, right? You're you're just <laughs> supporting your belief in the world because the evidence is stronger than a lot of things we have evidence for in neuroscience or psychology. But um, I think that there's just a stigma. I think it's like an invisible like chains, invisible shackles that we keep on ourselves because that's how we are. I mean, I don't want to make it sound trivial because it's not trivial. Like you can lose your job or you can be ostracized and stigmatized and all those things are true. Um, But hopefully, you know, we can move past that in the culture at some point. Uh, There are real risks, of course, but yeah, secretly, uh, you know, if you're at happy hour and have a few drinks with scientists, like they'll tell you anything and (laughs) they'll tell you crazy stories too, you know, and they may not even... I'm not saying they're all staying up late at night thinking about it or trying to figure out a model or something, but they're happy to say, yeah, like, you know, my grandmother died and she visited me and told me, you know, and they have, they have stories and a lot of times they're meaningful for that. The stories are meaningful and they, they, you know, it varies among individuals uh, to what degree they accept it or question it. But uh, yeah, you can definitely get them to talk to you in private about it, which is what I found. But then, you know, and that's part of why I wrote the book. Cause I was like, this is ridiculous. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> we're all on the same page, but we can't talk about it in public. Like, this is silly. Yeah. Like, what do you think will eventually change this stigma? Probably a bunch of things. Um, but what are some of the things that come to mind? Yeah. I think it'll be a lot of things, like you said. I mean, I think that uh, one thing is there's power in numbers. Like I said, when you feel like you're the only one uh, and you don't have the time. So let's say you have an experience and then you don't have the time to go read philosophy and all the things that I read. Um, You're probably, unless it's life shattering, you're probably going to ignore it because it's too hard to engage with it and append your worldview, especially when you think that you're going to be abandoned by all of your colleagues and the people around you because they Mm. hold, you know, likewise, uh, similar beliefs to what you have, which is that impossible things are impossible. And so, um, so one thing I think definitely is power in numbers. And like last year, we, a collaborator and I held a neuroscience and spirituality social at the largest mm-hmm. neuroscience conference. I thought no one would come because I genuinely, for some reason in my head, I still thought people, they're not going to show up to that in a professional setting. But we had uh, 50 plus scientists show up and they were, re- I mean, I'm telling you, <laughs> I've been in the field of neuroscience for like 10 years. I've been to a lot of these socials mm-hmm. and symposiums and stuff. I've never seen a meeting like that where everybody was so excited to be there. They stayed the whole time. Mm-hmm. They were passionate. They were curious. Um, I, I was really blown away. And I think it just speaks to an unmet need. And I think everybody was surprised that there were so many of us there uh, and they kept telling us, they're like, Oh, you guys are so brave for putting this together. And I thought, Oh, how sad, <laughs> <laughs> oh, how sad that we have to be the brave ones or whatever. But um, so I think it for sure strengthened numbers. I do think that uh, if you want to talk about logistics, I think the psychedelic Renaissance is going to change things. It's already starting to change things um, because uh, and also um, there's a group of older scientists who've, who, you know, used to be tenured and now they're retired and now they can study whatever they want. So a lot of them are, are into science and spirituality and they're publishing papers, um, like Marjorie Woolacott, um, 
the, the scientific and medical network is what it's called. It was actually founded in the seventies for mm-hmm. scientists who are interested in non-materialist science. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a lot of scientists yeah, who've like kind of retired and now they can publish whatever they want. So they're publishing um, studies on uh, people's ex- uh, experiences with spiritual awakenings, with energetic, you know, Kundalini type experiences. Uh, so all these studies that have never been done. That's another thing is people keep saying the evidence isn't there. Part, it's partly true because it's never, uh, it's never been funded. The work's never been done. It's never been a priority. So of course there's no evidence for it. No one's looked at it. So um, now they're they're starting to do that a little bit. So that's um, as they publish more, that's a sea change, but also the psychedelic Renaissance because mm-hmm. psychedelics is an altered state and altered states um, put you in that space where miraculous, spiritual, mystical, emergent experiences happen. And even though the field, like I just went to the MAPS psychedelic conference, the largest psychedelic conference and gathering they claim in the history of the world. And um, a lot of it was focused on on the science, you know, the neuroscience, the chemicals, blah, blah, blah. Um, but there were panels and stuff on the spiritual side. Um, and even though the mainstream kind of doesn't touch it because they're not supposed to, or it would be unscientific. You are seeing um, studies published from Johns Hopkins looking at uh, how psychedelics flip people's metaphysical beliefs. Like people who take psychedelics come out less physicalist. They come out believing consciousness doesn't end when your physical body dies, that everything is conscious, that plants are conscious, that, you know, they come out with these really crazy beliefs that, um, or, you know, the philosophies we were talking about earlier, they're not crazy. They're, um, uh, but they seem crazy to the Western scientific materialist mind. But I think the psychedelics are forcing uh, sort of uh, us to look at that because they're so, they're so healing. They're like this promising quote unquote mental health uh, therapeutic. And then, but with that comes this spiritual transpersonal side that I think can't be ignored. So I think there is already some shifting happening and hopefully that will continue, but I think it will just be a matter of, yeah, a few of those things. Yeah. When you mention psychedelic experiences, the next immediate thought that comes to mind is that these sort of alternate states of consciousness, be it that we arrive at them through meditation, psychedelic experiences, breath work, there's many methods, but or spontaneously. And I think especially with spontaneous ones, there's the risk of them being pathologized or at the very least seen as weird. Um, what can we do there? And I'm asking this on behalf of people who may not be scientists or may not be able to conduct studies or, you know, push advancement in this way, but what can we do in our day-to-day to to counteract this? You mean if someone's personally experiencing? Yeah. So let's say if, let's say if I were to personally experience that, or if I know someone who has, and and what, where would I go for support Mm. or how would I get support for someone else? Yeah, that's what I that's sort of what I've been writing about lately because there 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 isn't a lot of support. There is some. I'm going to talk about what that is, but uh that's one of the problems with because our culture basically doesn't believe that these things happen. There hasn't been any focus attention or efforts around uh resources to support when this type of thing happens. So 
you know, in other cultures where this is normal, uh, the whole community would support you if you're going through a spiritual community uh, awakening. Sorry, they'd be like, oh, of course, you know, oh, yeah, you're going to be destabilized for a while. So we'll help you out. But in our culture, in addition to not having anyone understand, uh, you'll, yeah, you can, it could be pathologized. And if you try to go to the doctor, they might put you on antipsychotics and diagnose you with something like schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. So there is a group that is called the Emergent Phenomenology Research Consortium. And there are um, 600 scientists, physicians, and scholars uh, who, uh, believe and have experienced emergent or impossible phenomena. And they are working actually to literally change the medical field in the U.S. to identify these emergent spiritual experiences as separate from a mental health illness. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, one of the guys who founded it was an emergency room doctor who said, you know, we cannot keep pathologizing people who come in with these spiritual awakenings because it just ends up uh, harming them. And one of the most uh, useful things for people in those states is um, to find meaning in the experience, but you can't find meaning if the meaning is you are schizophrenic. Here's an antipsychotic. So um, the, they have, you know, there hasn't again been much research done on this, but the research that has been done shows that the best ways to get through these is to have a supportive network, to have people going through uh, or who have gone through something similar, um, to engage in spiritual practices, and or or avoid them if you're in the middle of a, <laughs> a like really intense energetic awakening. Um, and so there are some centers like there's the American Center for Spiritually Transformative Experiences, and there's um, Stan Groff founded uh, the Spiritual Emergence Network. So there are a few resources like that that can help you find um, a care provider who can provide support for you. Um, and those organizations have done some research around like, what does this look like? And some of it's what we've discussed. If you uh, come from a Western worldview and suddenly you have something happening in your body that you can't explain, or you suddenly know how people are feel around you are feeling, or you know when things are going to happen before they happen, um, your you know dreams come true or whatever, the stuff starts happening and you don't understand it and you you do think you're crazy. And the first thought is to go to the doctor and and get, you know, um, some medicine to clear it up. Uh, in, in addition to that, so that immediately will change your identity, you know, throws your ontology into question. It can isolate you from friends and family, you know, um, and then even if you have a positive experience, you still have to deal with all all those things. So even if it's been a beautiful spiritual awakening, you still have to come back to, oh, wait, now my worldview is different from everyone around me. And I can't go to my job. It's out of alignment with my new values. Um, you know, I don't care about money anymore. Sort of like when people have near-death experiences, they come back and 70% of them get divorced because um, they come back with the, you know, new ideals and new values for life. And it's a beautiful experience for them. They're suddenly like, oh, I'm connected to nature. And my purpose here is to be in service to others. And, you know, like they're, they come back like glowing and like it's been a great experience for them. But then there's the encounter with harsh reality, which is, you know, maybe their, their job isn't aligned with those values or their spouse isn't aligned with those values. Mm. And so 
there's a lot of um, difficulty in that, uh, you know, uh, clashing um, of those experiences and situations that can arise when you have some sort of spiritual awakening. And again, this can happen with psychedelics. You can have a psychedelic experience and come back with like a new worldview. And that's what I was writing in one of my um, newsletter uh, issues was where's the research on what happens when you do come back with a worldview flip, then what happens? <laughs> like You've changed your worldview, but it's not trivial to do that. So it's like, then what happens? And I think that that research is, is um, starting to be done, but it'll be a while till we see it. Yeah, I think that's such an important thing to point out. And just that ontological shock, as you describe it, I think it's only exacerbated by the expectations and the pressures that you go back to business as normal, uh, there is no framework to explain what happened to you aside from it's pathologized well, in, the, in the Western worldview, dominant Western worldview, mm -hmm. as you said. And I think you made uh, another very, very important point that the overwhelming majority of people do not have the time to sift through studies and books and think about it and, you know, consciously, like, you know, rethink their paradigm or don't even have the awareness that there is such a thing as a paradigm, that there's mm -hmm. alternative frameworks to mm -hmm. what you're experiencing that may better right. explain what you're going through. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think books such as yours hold immense value in making that information concise, relatable, accessible, and just you know, planting that seed and being like, there's an alternative. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I saw this, you know, it's funny. I think when I wrote it, I was like, oh, this will just be, you know, information for people out there. But the more that I've been since the book came out and talking to people and what and getting into this um, uh, culture, maybe or communities. Uh, yeah, I'm just realizing. So, for example, I was watching this talk from Rice University had a conference and I was watching a talk from this uh, guy who used to be a professor of Buddhism, mm -hmm. and he oh, was explaining how he would teach practices to his um, students, uh, like 30-day like course or whatever, and they would have all these mystical things happen to them. Like, uh, mm -hmm. like we were talking about, like uh, they would have visions that would come true. They could see entities. Um, they would have time slippages or weird things would happen, co meaningful coincidences. So the more they did the spiritual practices, the more they had these mystical experiences, but the less anxiety, depression, um, and just like suffering they had. Because the because when you touch the mystical, um, it puts you in touch with something greater than yourself. And there's been some research showing that that sense of awe and wonder and a connection to something greater um, really is kind of very healing for humans. And it's like, it relieves anxiety, depression, and, and loneliness. And so he, he got, um, he had to leave his the university because it was a Catholic university and I guess they were not on board <laughs> with his class. Mm -hmm. So he had to leave, but he turned it into like a 30 day program that you can um, find online and do it. But he said like scientific, he just, he kind of just blatantly said it. And I was like, I don't know if I've ever blatantly said it, but I've definitely believed it. But I actually think scientific materialism is a very cruel worldview or nihilism is very cruel. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, it's incompatible with humanity uh, and so I, I think that we, a lot of this so-called mental health issues that we see are really a spiritual crisis of people not being, being isolated from each other and from their connection with each other and to something greater. 
And so um, it's a bold thing to say, because sometimes I step back to, again, into old me, and I'll be like, no, it's the economic system, or no, it's, <laughs> you know, I don't know, whatever. But, um, but I don't know, but I think that I've read enough studies now, especially, I think with the psychedelic, you know, like, uh, you're kind of like drilled down to what is the core of um, what alleviates people's, you know, issues. And some of it is that. I mean, a lot, some of it is still regular psychotherapy and working through your personality structure and issues, but um, part of what helps get you out of that loop in your, is in your mind is connection to something that like shocks you out of that for a moment, right? That is like, oh, whoa, wait, like there's, I stop thinking about yourself and your problems and, you know, you're in touch with something else. So I think that, um, yeah, I think it's, I think it's a terrible worldview, honestly. And I think it's kind of critical that. Uh, I, I don't even want to put it in those. I don't want to frame it like that. Like, oh, we need to. Everyone needs to get on board. It's kind of like it's it's there for you. Uh, it, it it will help. <laughs> like it will it will be valuable and it will help you and you'll feel relief like to open up to that aspect of the universe in a way you didn't know was possible when you like drop your like <laughs> marriage to scientific materialism. Yeah. Yeah. I'm also not a fan of the nihilistic side of scientific materialism. And I think it was Mark Gober who made the point in his book that, you know, a common criticism is, well, you only believe in these things, these things being, you know, the, the, the spiritual uh, frameworks, uh, because you can't deal with the harsh reality. But that's, you know, that, that, that assumes that the reality is harsh in the first place. Why can't reality fundamentally be loving? Right. As you know, as as these mm -hmm. frameworks um, do suggest, so yeah, I think it's important to know that we have the option, and you know, um, to decide for ourselves. Hey, mm -hmm. the, which one makes more sense to me? Which one explains my life experiences better? Um, yeah. And which one? And I think for most people, it's really which one serves me more. I think you know, I think for a scientist, it's you know. Work-wise, it's which one explains reality better. But I think for mm -hmm. most people, is which one actually works for me and makes me that's, happier. So I think that's right. Yes, yeah. Things. That's very. <laughs> that's very. That's yeah. That's perfect. I, actually, that's what I came to realize in the book too. I remember thinking, you know, on the one hand, I'm writing for scientists and saying, "Hey, wake up! Your model doesn't explain all of these classes of data. So stop doing confirmation bias and thinking <laughs> that it does. Like, you know, open your minds." But I think, yeah, the other. Uh, the personal aspect of it is, whoa, spirituality is super valuable and improves your life exponentially. And if you step outside, yeah, these confines you've built in your mind for no reason, or just because society has adopted that view, um, there's a lot of other ways to live and they're better. Yeah. And I think even old Mona would probably agree that even if we look um, at the problems we have from a systems level, like you were mentioning the economy, well, all of these systems have been built by humans who operated mm -hmm. on particular assumptions. So we, we do come back to the assumptions about our world. Yes, um, that's right. Yeah, we have a lot of assumptions about humanity being, I mean, even before the spiritual journey, I always thought it was very strange that uh, behaviorism, you know, I, mm -hmm. I think that um, I always thought it was strange that we always highlighted how, how we're similar to animals rather than how we're different because it's like we're way more different than we are similar to animals and yet like a lot of our systems are built around how we're basically animals 
who, who, you know, can't like, I don't know, we're driven by our subconscious, which some of it is true, but it's like, but the ways the humanity is different are so profoundly different from animals. Like, again, just think of music and art and culture and philosophy and the fact, like there's such so much difference. Mm -hmm. I always thought it was really odd that we didn't place more emphasis on that. And, um, I, and I think that's a simple, maybe jumping off point for you. If you're, you know, if you're looking for, um, a a way to break out of the, the Western worldview is, I mean, maybe we're not, if you don't have to go spiritual, but maybe we're not as bad as we think we are, you know? Yeah, just just open the door to maybe you were a little bit better than yeah. we thought. Yeah, I think it's an important point. You don't have to go all the way on any one specific belief. At the end of the day, we don't we don't all believe the same things. I don't think we're, we'll yeah. ever get there. Really, yeah. um, you said something earlier that um, I want to pick up again, which was the evidence for psychic phenomena is so overwhelming that. For you is pretty much a done deal so i want to ask you mm-hmm. is there any evidence that would make you convert back to scientific materialism um it's a, I, I, it's a good question i mean i guess i'd have to see a lot of it uh let me think I don't know. You know, actually, I was doing that thought experiment the other day. I was like, what if like putting in contrast scientific evidence versus personal experience? And I mean, for me, anyway, the personal experience has been overwhelming. So on that alone, uh, I I don't know, it would be hard to overcome that. Um, And I think the scientific evidence, you know, for any kind of scientific evidence to to um, convince me it has to be you know uh, a lot of different populations a lot of different circumstances done over time large sample size like it would have to be a pretty exceptionally large um, robust data set that has controlled for a lot of the variables that haven't been controlled for I don't know it would have to be pretty impressive and I've I don't know I haven't seen that or I have no faith that that would be done but yeah I mean if I don't know. I mean, to be honest, because I've had personal experiences that um, mostly what it throws into question then for me is, is our understanding of statistics, Uh, you know? So sometimes I go back to that too, of like um, in science for us, it's statistics is kind of what determines the findings too, right? Like you could find an effect, but if it's not statistically significant, Mm -hmm. then it doesn't matter anyway. And uh, so I don't know, I think it would take a few things like, yeah, a big, robust study. But I also think, yeah, I would have to, I mean, it it would spin me for sure into (laughs) one of those thought like uh, labyrinths that I get caught in. But I don't know, I think it would take a lot. Yeah, it's it's tough to know until you see it, I think, because I think also if you were to ask old Mona, well, what would would convince you that spirituality has some truth to it? Could you help answer that from her perspective? Uh, uh, no, I mean, if you ask just for spirituality, no, I thought no, because I thought the point of spirituality and religion was to build, was faith, which is hmm. by definition, believing in something that doesn't have evidence. And I think I only, in my very narrow way of thinking, thought 
how would you prove if there's a God or, or not a God? Like I didn't, I wasn't aware of all of the other spiritual stuff that you could <laughs> measure and encounter. I was very, you know, naive. I just didn't know. So mm. to me back then it would have been, it would have been that, but yeah, if you, but if I was curious about, um, and you know, there are some places like Institute for Noetic Sciences is still doing research on this, trying to look at all of the variables, um, that affect these, you know, psychic or whatever phenomena. So, um, yeah, I probably would have said the same thing. Well, I, if, if I, if you believe me, if I ask me if I believe in God or not, or, or if there's a way to prove it, I would say there isn't because I still don't know if there is, but you know what? I've also learned that people are very creative with their experiments and that I'm just not an experimentalist, <laughs> very creative one. Cause I have read some really interesting experiments that I never would have thought of. So you never know. Yeah, it's uh, experimental design is a very creative endeavor. It's 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 incredible. Some of them, I agree. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you because we haven't touched on this, uh, at, but you did mention the value of personal experience several times, with with which I agree wholeheartedly. Um, what is a spiritual or psychic personal experience that you had that you would like to share with our listeners? Yeah, well, it started for me kind of in an impersonal way. Like my my mother and my grandmother would do what's called divination, which is use um, coffee grounds. It's not American coffee. It's like Greek, Armenian, Turkish coffee that you leave thick grounds in the cup. It dries, makes pictures, and then someone who's intuitive can look into it and get information about your life. And my grandmother and mother were very good at reading and my mom over the years I just realized she was like eerily creepily very good at saying things that would come true years like later I'm not sorry not years months 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 later sometimes years I guess but mostly months later um with you know just detail that again you know statistically like uh, there's no way that she could guess like there would be these things that were meaningful to me that I would never tell anyone that she would pick up on in the cup. Um, and it was, you know, two of those events that kicked off the crisis for me really, and the, caused me to write the book, but yeah, she foresaw a death, um, of someone I knew, a professor and the ending of a relationship or the outcome of a relationship. And, uh, but there's been a million, million other examples. And then, um, that caused me to start going to psychics to see if they were the real deal or, fake and uh, generic, like everyone says. And I found something there too. Like they would say things, you know, from my past. Okay. So for example, uh, one of the first two times I had gone to a psychic and I still wasn't sure, you know, uh, this lady, I think I asked her like, um, or she was telling me generally like, oh, sometimes things in our life uh, are a result of uh, trauma from our past um, or something like that. And I was like, oh yeah, duh. Um, and then I, and then I just thought to ask her, oh, is there something from, from my past? That's like from a trauma from my past that's being expressed in this current (laughs) situation. And she said this, um, like, it still gives me chills. Cause I was like, what the hell? Um, (laughs) she mentioned this, so when I was young, somebody I know, a, a, a child, I was a child, but I, another kid had an accident, um, uh, like a physical accident. They lived, they were fine, but it was a physical accident where 
uh, yeah, a part of their uh, body was hurt. And so she said the age that I was when it happened, she was like, oh, something around the time when you were like seven. Um, and then she said the na- the body part, I don't want to, it's not my story, so I don't want to say what it is, but um, she named the body part, which was not like a hand, <laughs> it was like a random body part that I was like, what the, how did she know? And then um, she she's, uh, mentioned a few other uh, ver- things about the situation. And then the one that really killed me was, uh, that person ended up moving the child um, who got hurt ended up moving to uh, a, a city, uh, Portland, Portland, Oregon. And um, she said like Portland, Oregon. <laughs> and I was just, and so anyway, it was like, it was like maybe three or four or five variables. And I was just staring at her and it was just like obscure event from my childhood, you know, that I didn't think about like ever and would, would not think would be affecting my current day life. Um, and so, you know, things like that, you're just kind of staring, but I've had so many more moments like that with intuitives. And then I've also had my own, like I used to always have precognitive dreams when I was younger. And then when I went through graduate school, um, by the end of it, you become so disconnected from yourself and your spiritual side, and you start to explain everything away as mm-hmm. your brain creating meaning. So I stopped having them. But then when I started this spiritual journey, they started happening again. Uh, and so they're they're always very specific and ex- like they're not symbolic. I, I'm sure I have symbolic dreams too, but I'm not very good at interpreting them. But mm-hmm. mine are very explicitly like the exact scene, you know, will happen like a few days after. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, yeah, and that was actually one of the, that was so funny when we had that event at the Society for Neuroscience, uh, the social, that was one of the first questions. Someone raised their hand and they were like, I have these dreams (laughs) that come true, like exactly as I see it, like the exact conversation. Uh, And she's like, what's that called? And I was like, oh. (laughs) <laughs> yeah they're called pre- precognitive dreams uh-huh. and I have them too so yeah and I've had a lot of other um moments of like just knowing uh like just knowing things um mm-hmm. so and a lot, yeah other things but uh, I'm not as um in tune as uh some people who are like oh they can see colors and they can feel energy and uh, I'm not, I'm not all into it like that, but I've had enough that, um, yeah, you can't like, you can't easily brush them off. Yeah. It's once I haven't had a lot of experiences, but I have had some, some experiences like precognitive dreams, you know, like just one of clear cognizance, like you were describing, but it's true. Even if it's about some are about mundane things, but they're still like, whoa. You know, once you experience Oh, yeah, it. they're very powerful. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a bit odd. Um, I want to ask you, if um, if you think about 50 years from now, what do you hope that we will finally understand about these experiences? Oh, there's a good question. Well, I think that what, one thing just societally, I guess, for Western culture is that they're totally normal and that they're meaningful. Um, it, it'll be up to you to figure out what that meaning is, but that they're meaningful and um, 
and they're very normal and typical. Uh, and then I hope that, you know, my hope for science too is to incorporate it because I do think that from all the science that I've read is that it's not like there's two completely separate. Like if we have the physical world and then we have that, obviously there's some sort of interaction. Otherwise we wouldn't be aware of that world at all. So um, my hope is that, you know, people will study that intersection, whether it's, um, you know, magnetic or energy or whatever. I don't know. I'm not a physicist or a material scientist, but yeah, I think that there's some work on that, but I think that is really interesting um, to examine that, that intersection of how the world's, I mean, they must interact. So how do they interact? Yeah, I'd be super curious as well. Well, hopefully yeah. it happens sooner <laughs> rather than later. <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe the UFOs will tell us. <laughs> oh, that's, I think that's a podcast episode on it. <laughs> We'll keep it. We'll keep it for next time. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> I want to ask you: um, Is there something that we haven't touched on today, but you would like to add to the conversation? Um, I don't know. Just that it's it's like there's so much to read. I don't know. I would just encourage people to read. It's so interesting. And again, I can't recommend specific things because I feel like you know, people are drawn to different things. I was really drawn to psychics and I still am. I just love watching people give readings. I just think it's so fascinating. Um, and I have a friend who's really, really intuitive. So I love, um, engaging with him on that and like hearing his experience of it, but for other people, it'll be other things. Right. And so I just think if I, need to, or I would encourage people to get, yeah, get curious, find something that sparks your interest and kind of, um, the hardest thing in the world to do, but let go of your preconceived notions of how things work and try to stay curious to what's out there. Cause we don't really know. And I think, honestly, I do think there's just a lot of sea change. Like there's this, the UAP stuff, the psychedelics, there's, uh, more spiritual, awakenings happening like people have reported more spiritual awakenings than ever before um i don't know if it all means anything but i do think that at least for western culture it's good news you know that uh some of these topics can come into the come into the light and i think that they're uh they're good things right i think again it puts humanity in touch with the idea that there's something greater than ourselves and uh we're connected to something else yeah that's awesome Lastly, Mona, I'm sure our listeners want to go on the web and find you. Where can they find you, aside from your book? Yeah, my website is monasopaniphd.com. I do need to update it, but most things are there. <laughs> my interviews and the psychedelic newsletter I write, I think there's a sign up there for that. So, um, And then also we created a community for scientists, neuroscientists um, who are interested in these topics, you can uh, find our website. It's called exploringconsciousness.org, but I link to it from my own website. Uh, you can sign up there for our newsletter and we, we send out a newsletter like once a month highlighting books and podcasts and articles that we think are interesting. 
Awesome. And of course, Mona's book, Proof of Spiritual <laughs> Phenomena, which I have next to me. Can you see like all the bits I marked? Like oh, I, wow. I, I, I went crazy on the book. But yeah, definitely we'll drop a link to everything you mentioned in the show description. We'll drop a link to the book as well. Um, I highly, highly recommend it. I've read it twice. So definitely has oh, reread value and beyond. Um, Mona, I want to thank you so, so much for being here today and sharing all your insights, experiences, wisdom. It was really lovely to have you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. You asked really good questions. <laughs> <laughs> the hardest questions I've been asked thus far. <laughs> <laughs>